a very, very happy Father's Day to all of you dads in the house. Uh, I want you to know, dads, that we love you, we appreciate you, we hold you in the very, very highest regard. Uh, We need you, frankly. We need you, and may the Lord bless you, and may the Lord increase your tribe, if you will. We're continuing through the New Testament book of Romans. Today we're going to steer into Romans 11 and 12. If you have a text, I invite you to turn there. And in the 21st century, Romans chapters 9 through 11 are particularly challenging because they talk so much about Israel and the Jewish people. But it's real easy, really, to remember the overall theme of chapters 9 through 11 if you just think this way, that Romans 9 through 11 is all about the Jewish problem. It's all about the Jewish problem. Now, you ask the question, well, what in the world is the Jewish problem? It's this. If Jesus is the Messiah, if Jesus is the Savior of the world, if he is the sent one of God, then why did so many Jews, men and women alike, choose not to follow him? That is the Jewish problem. That is the question Paul speaks into in Romans 9 through 11. You can think about it this way. Romans 9 is all about Israel's past Really? Romans 10 is all about Israel's present, uh, especially in the time when Paul was writing. And Romans 11 is all about Israel's future. And it's a great future because God hasn't given up on Israel. God's not done with Israel. Let's pick it up in Romans 11, starting in verse 1, go all the way through verse 10. I ask then, has God rejected his own people, the nation of Israel? Well, of course not. I myself am an Israelite a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. No, God has not rejected his own people, whom he chose from the very beginning. Do you realize what the scriptures say about this? Elijah the prophet complained to God about the people of Israel and said, Lord, they've killed your prophets, torn down your altars. I'm the only one left. Now they're trying to kill me too. And do you remember God's reply? He said, no, I have 7,000 others who have never bowed down to Baal. It's the same today. For a few of the people of Israel have have remained faithful because of God's grace, his undeserved kindness in choosing them. And since it is through God's kindness, then, it is not by their good works. For in that case, God's grace would not be what it really is, free and undeserved. So this is the situation. Most of the people of Israel have not found the favor of God they're looking for so earnestly. A few have the ones God has chosen, but the hearts of the rest were hardened. As the scriptures say, God has put them into a deep sleep. To this day, he shut their eyes so that they do not see, closed their ears so they do not hear. Likewise, David said, let their bountiful table become a snare, a trap that makes them think all is well. Let their blessings cause them to stumble. Let them get what they deserve. Let their eyes go blind so they cannot see, and let their backs be bent Forever. Now that is thick and dense, and one way we can sort of frame that passage is by the questions that shows up. The first question comes from verse 1. Has God rejected his own people? Has God rejected the Jews? Has he rejected Israel? And Paul says, no, he absolutely has not. Now we can turn that question a bit and ask it in more modern terms, which would be to ask it this way. Has God lost the battle for the human race? And how many of us have asked that very question? Has God lost the battle for the human race today in 2012, right now? Oh, it's really easy sometimes to look on the news headlines and say, yes, it's really tempting, frankly, isn't it? We look around and you think about the level of pain that we see around us. 
Lots of us experience that very level of pain personally, and it's really easy to go, well, absolutely, God has lost. Satan has won the day, absolutely. But Paul's sort of jumping up and down saying, no, absolutely not. He hasn't lost the day. No matter how hopeless the situation looks or feels, God has not lost the battle for humanity. And then Paul sketches out a couple of examples that ought to and are intended to inspire us to believe that indeed God has not lost the battle. First, Paul talks about himself in verse 1. I myself am an Israelite, he says, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. And you kind of go like, well, why does that matter when it comes to our belief that God hasn't lost the battle for humanity? Well, remember back to before Paul gave his heart and life to Christ, what was he doing? He was persecuting the Christian church, wasn't he? He hated Jesus. He hated followers of Jesus. Really, Paul was a terrorist who became an evangelist. He went from hating the Son of God to becoming the greatest preacher of the gospel the world has ever seen. And Paul says, just look on me. If you ever wonder if hope is lost, just look at my life. Look at me and think about what I used to be and then think about what I am now and believe that God has not lost the battle for humanity. Look at Paul's changed life. Maybe you say, look at my changed life. Look at what God did in me. And then Paul gives us this other faith-inspiring example from the story of Elijah, 1 Kings 19. Lots of you know the story. After his great victory over the prophets of Baal on top of Mount Carmel, Elijah faced an enormous bout of depression. Elijah became incredibly depressed, probably like clinically depressed. He was afraid of this very wicked woman whose name was Jezebel, that's right. She was the wife of Ahab, the king of Israel, because she had threatened to kill him. So what did Elijah do? He took off, ran hundreds of miles, and he hid in a cave on Mount Horeb. So he wins this great battle, and then he runs off and hides in a cave because he's scared of losing his own life. He thinks they're coming after him to kill him because he humiliated the prophets of Baal. So there's Elijah. He's hiding out in this cave and the Lord speaks into the hideout and he asks Elijah this very simple question. What are you doing here? It's a great question. Why are you hiding in a cave? And Elijah steps back and he says something like, Lord, you don't have a clue. Your people have rejected the covenant. They're tearing down altars. They're killing the prophets. They're killing guys just like me. And I'm down here just running for my life. What do you mean? What are you doing here? They're going crazy out there, God. Why don't you keep tabs on your people or something? And Elijah says, like, I'm the only one. I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. This is self-preservation here, God. And you hear Elijah's side of the story and you're like, whoa, that's about as bad and that's about as bleak as it could possibly get, right? What What does God do, though? He answers Elijah with some very good news, you're not the only one, Elijah. There are still how many? 7,000. There's 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed down to Baal. And there's Elijah. He's sitting out in this cave, hiding out, running for his life, and he's going, I'm the only one. And God says, no, you're not, Elijah. You're not the only one. 7,000 people. You're not alone, Elijah. And we have a name for this, what Elijah is experiencing. It's actually called the Elijah Complex. It's the Elijah complex, right? And it happens all the time when people, some of us even, start thinking we're the only one following Jesus. I'm the only one trusting God. I'm the only one engaging in the mission of Christ. 
it's kind of like a case of the pouty pooties. Dads, you know what the pouty pooties are? Or if you have little kids, you know this all the time, right? Their little lower lip gets stuck out, you know, and things get real sad. I put my foot down on the pouty pooties at my house. We don't do those. Over, we're tough. We're Hopkins, I say. We don't do pouty pooties. Suck it up. No pouty pooties. No PLOMs either. Poor little old me's. PLOMs. We don't do that, right? It happens when we start saying, I'm the only Christian in my class. I'm surrounded by Christian haters at the office. There's not a single Christian in my whole neighborhood. I'm the only Christ follower in my whole family. Everybody, everybody else makes fun of my faith. My whole team makes fun of Christians. I'm the only one who cares what God thinks. Pouty pooties, poor little old me's. And those and statements just like those are what people say when they're plagued by this Elijah complex. When you have it, it makes you do all kinds of crazy things. It makes you say all kinds of crazy stuff. You'll like run off and hide in a cave and like try to hide out from your problems so bad guys can't get you and so. But here's what we know about God is he's good. We know that God is good and he will never let it go that far. God will never, ever, ever let it get down to just you, only you, all alone. Why? Because God knows. He knows that we, all by ourselves, are just a little bit shaky, just a little bit unpredictable. God won't let it get that far. And God always has his people in the most unlikely of places. You're not ever the only one. At the end of Romans 11, Paul unpacks for us really the apex of God's glory, from our perspective at least, and that is his mercy. The apex of God's glory from our perspective is his mercy. Look at verses 30 to 36. Once you Gentiles were rebels against God, but when the people of Israel rebelled against him, God was what? Merciful to you instead. Now they are the rebels, and God's mercy has come to you so that they too will share in God's mercy. For God has imprisoned everyone in disobedience so he could have mercy on everyone. How many times is the word mercy, merciful, going to show up in this text? Oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and his ways. For who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to give him advice? Who has given him so much that he needs to pay it back? For everything comes from him and exists by his power and is intended for his glory. All glory to him forever. Amen. Now that can be very, very difficult to follow through that text. But let me sort of bottom line it for you here. It's this. God actually uses disobedience as an opportunity to display his mercy. God uses disobedience as an opportunity to display his mercy. And so you step back from all that and you think on the Jews. And here's what we understand, that God is actually working through the disobedience of the Jews in order to display his mercy to the Gentiles so that the Jews will long to experience God's mercy for themselves. See? And this happens to us, doesn't it? How many days and how many times do we step back in our world and we survey it and we look on the devastation and the brokenness and the pain and the misery and the sadness and the despair and the really 
endless sea of human suffering that stretches in every direction as far as the eye can see. And we have these moments where we say, oh God, where in the world are you? Something traumatic happens in our life and we're like, God, what in the world? Why that? And here's the answer that comes from God in heaven. It's this. It actually happened, God says, so that I might display my mercy for all of the world to see. That's God. That's God. And Jesus tells this fantastic story to help us understand the mercy of God at a most basic level from Luke 18, starting in verse 9. Then Jesus told the story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. What's the writer saying there about Jesus' story? He's talking to religious people who think they've got it all figured out. He's talking to religious people who hold their noses high in the air and are like, God, you're so lucky to have me on your side. That's who he's talking to. And here's the story. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee. The other was a despised tax collector. And setting this up the way Jesus does, it's sort of the equivalent of saying, one was the president of the United States. The other one was a prostitute. It's that dramatic. And the Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not a sinner like everyone else. We should love that. Like the arrogance of that prayer. For I don't cheat. I don't, I don't even sin, he says. Whoa, I don't commit adultery. And I'm certainly, you sort of hear this guy, you see him pointing, right? I'm certainly not like that tax collector over there. I fast twice a week and I give you a tenth of my income. Whoa, God is so lucky to have that guy. But the tax collector stood at a distance, right? You sort of picture the tax collector. He's off, away. And he dared not even, check this out, lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. He could only look down. Oh. And he beat his chest. And he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. And the echo in the room would have been amen, right? That's what everybody else gathered and hearing that tax collector pray that prayer. They would have been saying amen. And Jesus goes on, he finishes the story. I tell you, this sinner, the tax collector, not the Pharisee, returned home justified. It's a fancy way to say saved. Returned home saved before God. For those who exalt themselves, they will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. And the scandal of this story is that the good man, he ends up lost. The quote-unquote good man, he ends up lost. The quote-unquote bad man ends up justified, ends up saved. Why? Because the bad man knew. The bad man knew. He prayed to God, the right person. He prayed the right prayer. Have mercy. He makes the right request to me, a sinner. It's the right confession. The rest of society looked on at that tax collector and was like, you're a bad dude. You're a bad dude. You've really wasted your life, is what everyone would have thought. You're a scoundrel. You're a crook. You're a cheat. And yet he approaches the sovereign and supreme God of the universe and he just says simply, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, forgive me, not because I'm so special, not because of anything that I've done, not because 
definitely not because I deserve it, but just because, God, you're merciful. The apex of God's glory from our perspective is his mercy. And God always and forever has a mercy agenda. God always and forever has a mercy agenda. He looks at things so much differently with different eyes entirely than we do. And how many times in your life have you looked on somebody? Dads, you might have done this, especially if you're a dad with older kids, like sort of out of the house, older, and you're looking on your children's life, the choices they're making, and you're like, oh my gosh, that is headed for disaster. And how many times have you gone, there is no hope? Some of us have done that, haven't we? There is no hope. That thing is headed off of a cliff, and it's only going to end badly. But dads, understand this. God doesn't think that way. God doesn't think like us. As a matter of fact, dads especially, God's inviting you to see things with his eyes, the way he sees them, especially when it comes to the mercy and long-suffering and patience deal. I actually believe, dads, that one of the greatest gifts you can give to your family as you lead your household in the ways of Christ is that you would imitate God, especially when it comes to the mercy deal. That we would be fathers who imitate God when it comes to the mercy deal. That we would be merciful first and foremost. That we would take, just like God does, the long view. That you would, as a gift to your family, that you would be the family optimist. The family optimist. Why? Because God is. God does. God will. God has. And his view is that no person is so bad, no person is so far gone, that God's mercy cannot and will not reach them. It's at work. He's at work. Even when we can't see it, when we can't smell it, when it doesn't look like it's anywhere near. For God, no person whatsoever, whosoever is hopeless. No person is hopeless. Dads, give the gift of mercy to your family. Think about God's mercy extended to you and then just distribute that. Give it away. Overflow it time and time and time again. Lead, Dad, with your mercy foot. Lead with your mercy foot every time. And we step out of Romans chapter 11. We move into Romans chapter 12. And the whole book of Romans has this sort of theological reputation of being one of the most rich theological books in the whole Bible. Because of that label, some people, Christians, scholars, pastors, have been compelled to ask, why then does Paul bother with all this practical stuff tacked onto the end of the letter? The theology section of his writing is wrapped up in chapter 11, so why not just put a period at the end? Why say anything else? Just call it good. But that is a fundamental misunderstanding of theology, what theology is, how theology plays out, because you see, all theology is practical. All theology is practical, and all practice, if truly Christian, is theological. So it's really true to say that Paul's gospel, that's what some people have called the book of Romans, Paul's gospel is deeply, richly theological. It is also eminently practical because it's rooted in this understanding that the gospel of Jesus is intended to change you 
to change me. Which means that until we own and until we live that theology out, the gospel hasn't accomplished its purpose at all. All the theology in the world doesn't matter if we're not living it out. Theology is practical always and forever. And Paul starts this sort of practical section with these verses, 12, 1 and 2. These will be familiar to lots of you. And so, and those are big, big sort of heavy, weighty words. Sort of the punctuation at the end of 11 chapters of thick, dense theology. And Paul's signaling like, okay, we're moving on beyond that now. And so, we're finishing that out. And so, dear brothers and sisters, that's you and that's me, I plead, picture Paul down on his knees, plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. And so Paul kicks off this life application section of his letter to the Roman church, and he frames everything he's about to say by declaring, look, everything you do is worship. And you've heard that a lot around here if you've been around here very long at all. Everything you do is worship. The way you live your life is worship. Well, what's worship? Is it singing songs off screens with a band accompanying you? Yes, but that's not all. Worship is actually giving yourself in service to God. Giving your whole self in service to God and living on his mission every minute of every hour of every single day. And Paul uses that word body to describe what it is we're supposed to offer God. That's very purposeful. Because by doing so, he's announcing that our worship is to involve even the parts of our lives that we might be tempted to think about as not being worshipped. You think about this, as you eat, you're worshipping. Right? You know, we don't think that way very often, do we? It's kind of like, oh yeah, it is. Eating is worship. It's like something is elementary, something is rudimentary, is eating. That is to be worship to God. Now, think about that, and might that affect what you eat? Might that affect how you think about the food that you eat? Maybe it'll cause you to do a double take on a bratwurst soaked in PBR after we're done in here. Eating is worship. They're really good, by the way, but it's worship. As we work out or don't work out, we're worshiping or not worshiping. This one's hard. As we drive our cars, we're worshiping. I'm mostly sinning when I drive mine because you all drive so poorly. It's not you. It's everyone else. They all have fish on their car. And you're like, oh, geez, they're a Christian too. Wow. Driving, I'm the only good driver, by the way. No, Paul's going to correct me in just a second. You'll see it's coming. Like I'm going to get run over like a freight train. It's all worship. Some of us, I, I hear people all the time say, I hate my job so much. It's like hell on earth. 
right? Some of you have had those thoughts and you're just like, oh, I just can't wait for the end of the day because my job is so utterly terrible. Your job, your work is worship. It's worship unto God. And that's incredibly important to remember. Because for most people, most Christians, our greatest temptation is to divide the sacred and the secular in our lives and start to think that only certain things we do have eternal significance. And Paul says, no way. It's one thing. Just one thing. There's no box over here that says sacred. There's no box over here that says secular. And you sort of step back and forth between the boxes. Uh-uh. Paul says it's all worship. It's all one Thing. Everything, everything is worship. From the smallest detail to the biggest, gravest thing in your life, it's continuous worship of God. Romans 12, 3 to 8. Because of the privilege and authority God has given me, I give each of you this warning. This is where Paul's smacking me right now for my driving comment. Don't think you are better than you really are. Like, whoa, got it. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith God has given us. Just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We're many parts of one body and we all belong to each other. You, me, us, we belong to each other. You are not your own. We belong to each other. And in his grace, God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. So if God has given you the ability to prophesy, speak out with as much faith as God has given you. If your gift is serving others, serve them well. If you're a teacher, teach well. If your gift is to encourage others, be encouraging. If it's giving, give generously. If God has given you leadership ability, take the responsibility seriously. And if you have a gift for showing kindness to others, do it gladly, Paul says. In light of this reality, then, see that everything we do in our lives is to be worshipped to God. Paul says, don't be self-centered. Like, duh, don't be self-centered. Stop being selfish. But we are, aren't we? And you think about your life, how many of the difficulties that we bump into come about because I'm self-centered, I'm selfish. Because, see, in this world, there's lots and lots of us who think that everything in life is about us right? We just do. Everything in life is, is about me, and what happens is that's abrasive to other people because some other people walking around this world, they think everything in life is about them, and well, your self-centeredness threatens their self-centeredness, and boom, that causes fireworks, right? And it's only June. It's not July yet, but there's fireworks. But fireworks and stress and disagreement and discord, watch this, have a way of just vanishing When people say, you know, it's not about me. You know, I'm just going to yield. That's what Paul's telling us. Just yield. Just let go. Just stop fighting. Just put down the self-centeredness. And Paul says, put down the self-centeredness and get about serving each other with all these incredible gifts that God's given us. Just get about it. You're, you're not your own. You belong to each other. So put a serving towel on each other, over your arm and serve each other. Love each other. Stop being selfish. And then in Romans 12, 9a, look what Paul says. Don't just pretend to love others. Ooh, 
really love them. Don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. And we're like, yes, love. Feels so good, warm, fuzzies, right? Honestly, in Christianity, you'd be hard-pressed to find a more popular theme than love, right? It's one of the most important ways of expressing what Christianity is all about. God is love and so on. There's just one problem. Love can be awfully vague, can't it? Love can be filled, frankly, with almost any meaning people want to give it, especially in our culture in which love is just something you fall in and out of, sort of on a whim sometimes. But watch this. In order to remain true to its intended meaning, love has to be defined in God's terms. He's the author of the love deal. That means he gets to define it, which means that we don't just get to pick and choose what love is or isn't. And in God's economy, from God's vantage point, love at its core, careful here, it's not emotional. Love at its core is not emotional. It's an attitude, it's a mindset, it's a matter of the will. As one guy put it, love is a decision. Love is a choice. And so Paul says, look, you who follow Jesus Christ, don't just pretend to love people. Really love them really love them. And when he says that, he's saying real, genuine, God-like love is expressed through actions. It's through choices that reveal that truth. Yes, I absolutely do love you. I'm not just saying it. I'm not just pretending to love you. Just look. Look at what I'm doing. Don't just listen to what I'm saying. Look at what I'm doing. Talk's cheap. And with that 12.9a, what Paul's really setting up there is he's saying, here, let me give you a list, sort of a bunch of bullet points of what real, authentic, God-like love looks like. When you're really loving people the way God loves people, the way God intends us to love people, here's what it looks like. 9b through, all the way through the end of the chapter, hate what is wrong. Real love looks like hating what's wrong. Real love looks like holding tightly to what's good. It's just staccato bullet points. Here we go. Love each other with genuine affection. Take delight in honoring each other. Never be lazy. Real, authentic love is not lazy. But work hard. Serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble. Keep on praying. Real love, it keeps on praying. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. That's what real love looks like. Always be eager to practice hospitality. That's what real love looks like. Bless those who persecute you. That's what real love looks like. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Stop fighting. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of, quote, ordinary people. And don't think you know it all. Don't think you know it all. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you're honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Dear friends, never take revenge. Real, authentic, God-like love never takes revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I, that's God, will take revenge. I will pay back them back, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. That's God-like love. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. That's God-like love. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. 
There's a whole bunch of things that Paul says real love looks like. And the one I want to key in on as we close up today is this issue of non-retaliation. Real, authentic, God-like love looks like non-retaliation. And Paul isn't breaking any new ground with these instructions about revenge and loving your enemies and so on. As a matter of fact, he's just building on the foundation Jesus has set on the matter. And it's this, followers of Christ don't do the tit-for-tat thing. Followers of Jesus Christ do not do the tit-for-tat thing. Christ followers, we, the church, instead respond to evil with kindness and love. Because at the end of the day, we know God ultimately rights the wrongs. God ultimately avenges evil. Now you talk about a trait that Christ calls us to that is counter-cultural. Whoa. Right? The desire to avenge ourselves on those who harm us is so deeply rooted in human nature. We like feel it. It's visceral, right? We celebrate revenge, frankly. You go to a movie and there's a bad guy or a bad girl and they get theirs and the theater like erupts. Yes, you got yours. But Paul, building on the foundation, Christ set he says you christians we us are called to be different you as a matter of fact as christians are to imitate christ whoa imitate christ well how's that look well when they were hurling insults at him the scriptures tell us he did not retaliate when he suffered at their evil hands He didn't make any threats. And we're actually supposed to go beyond just not doing evil to those who harm us. We're actually to do them good. We're supposed to bless them, which really when you step back from that and like what does that look like, it means that they're supposed to be better off after they've harmed you than they were before. Whoa. Really. You probably remember how back in 2006... There was a crazed gunman who entered an Amish school building, opening fire, killing five little Amish children. Remember that story? A woman named Diana Bass, she wrote an article really shortly afterward detailing that Amish community's response to the murders. It was a response that really, truly captured the world's attention. Did you know, for example, that within a week of that tragedy... Some of that Amish community's elder team visited the wife of the murderer. Why? They went to offer her and her family their forgiveness within a week. Next, did you know that the families of the slain girls invited the murderer's wife to their own children's funerals? Then, did you know that the families whose daughters were killed, they requested that all the relief money that was pouring in, it was pouring in from all over the world, that that money be shared with the murderer's wife and the murderer's children. And last, sort of the crown jewel of the whole deal, dozens and dozens and dozens of Amish families from that community attended the funeral service of the murderer himself, he died as you recall they went to the funeral and mrs bass she wrote about how one day she was reflecting with her husband 
on the spiritual power of the actions that the Amish took in the aftermath of that tragedy. And she was talking about how those actions were an amazing witness to the tradition of peace that the Amish live in. And her husband sort of stopped her mid-sentence and was like, witness? What are you talking about, witness? That went way, way past witnessing. They weren't witnessing to anything. They were actively, what, making peace. They were actively and tangibly making peace. And what's Jesus say? Blessed are the peacemakers. She writes, their actions not only witness that the Christian God is a God of forgiveness, but they, the Amish, actively created the conditions in which forgiveness could happen. And in the most straightforward way, they embarked on imitating Christ. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. In acting as Christ did, she writes, they did not speculate on forgiveness. They didn't just talk about it. They actually forgave. And what we all know is that forgiveness is the prerequisite to peace. Forgiveness is the prerequisite to peace. And so in your life, if it's all stirred up and you have all sorts of conflict and the water's always churned up in your life and there is no peace, you might have to go to the heart of the matter. And you might actually have to think, oh my gosh, I'm holding on to this root of bitterness and this is festering, unforgiveness is rooting in to my heart because always and forever forgiveness is the prerequisite to peace. You want peace, you gotta forgive. And Mrs. Bass concludes the article by saying we forgive because God forgave us. And in so forgiving, we actually participate in God's dream of reconciliation and shalom. The bringing, the coming of his kingdom on earth just as it is in heaven. And could you imagine a world where we were all living that out? Imagine what this world would look like. And then what if we didn't just imagine it? What if we actually went and lived that out every moment of every single day? Forgiveness, reconciliation, non-retaliation, no tit for tat, blessing those who persecute you. Blessing your enemy. Water, food, clothing, shelter to your enemy. So that the person who harms you is actually better off after they harmed you than they were before. What if we lived that out? It doesn't have to just be a dream. It's Jesus' order. It's his calling. It's his invitation. And he says, come on, will you live this out? Will you live this out? I invite you to take your stuff and set it aside. And I invite you to go to prayer and just transact any business that you need to do with God in this time. And with your heads bowed and with your eyes closed, perhaps there's someone here today and you've thought 
that your life, your sin, your stuff, your history is just too much for God. If you've thought that you're just too far gone, that God couldn't possibly have mercy on somebody who's done what you've done, and you've thought that hope is lost, that the mercy door was closed to you, And what God says is, no way. No way. As a matter of fact, my mercy is the apex of my glory from where you sit. And he says, my mercy is free to you. It cost God everything, but it's free to you. And you can take the step of saving faith in God, receiving his forgiveness and his mercy and his love tangibly by praying along with me prayer that goes like this. I invite you to pray with me. Jesus, for too long I've kept you out of my life. But God, here's what I know is that I'm a sinner and I can't save myself. I've been trying, but I can't. And so God, no more will I keep the door closed when I hear you knocking. I receive today, here, now, your gift of salvation. I trust you as my Lord and I trust you as my Savior. Thank you, Jesus, for coming to earth and for dying on the cross for me. Thank you, Jesus, for rising on the third day. Thank you, Jesus, for bearing my sins and for giving me the gift of eternal life. Come into my heart, Jesus. Be my Savior. And if you're stepping into the saving faith of Jesus Christ today, if you're stepping into the mercy of God today, that's the biggest choice of your whole life. It's such a big deal that around here we like to acknowledge that with people. So I'm going to ask you to do that with me right now. If you prayed with me just then to give your heart and life to Jesus, to step into saving faith in him, would you be real bold and just slip your hand up and lock eyes with me right now? You can do that right now and just say yes. I'm Yeah, in the back, absolutely. Both of you, yes. Absolutely, yes. Just make sure I catch your eye, would you please? I don't want to miss anybody. Yeah, there, absolutely. The saving faith of Jesus is yours. The mercy of God, never too far gone. Yes, yes, absolutely, yes. I see you, absolutely. Yes, yes. Never too far gone. And so Jesus, we rejoice and we celebrate these who are stepping into life in you, receiving your mercy and your forgiveness. We celebrate you, God. We don't just celebrate your attributes. We celebrate you. We thank you for your mercy and your hope and your forgiveness. And God, I pray for these, I pray for all of us, frankly, that we would be a living sacrifice offered up to you, that everything in our lives would be as worship. No bifurcation, no division. It's all worship, every single thing, all of it. Worship to you, our great God. And may you be pleased, authentically pleased with our lives as worship to you.
It's you we celebrate. It's you we delight in. God, and would you just continue your work in our hearts, shaping us, molding us, make us like Jesus. We want to be like Jesus. We don't want to retaliate. We don't want to get revenge. May your words be the first words off of our lips every time, Christ. And it's in your name we pray this. Amen.